2: Welcome to a brand new week. It's the Monday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and every week at four o'clock, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your questions, questions on the Bible, questions about what we believe as Christians or why we believe it. Um, maybe you're dealing with something in your life that's a little difficult, and um, I always tell you God's word has the answer, so uh, we'll help you with those kind of questions as well. Here are our phone numbers, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-5757, 630-KSLR. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app, and you will be connected directly to the studio producer by pushing the call now button, and hands-free, you can have your question. One more time, 340-9585. Just to keep you abreast of what's going on here, uh, because it's Monday, uh, we resume all of our Bible studies tonight. Um, We've had a three-week break well, everybody gets back to school and adjusted, but uh, tonight we start again, the men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Um, everybody worships together, and then they go to separate places. Ladies, Paula will be teaching tonight uh, as they begin 1 Peter, so Paula will be kicking it off. Um, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men in the book of Ephesians, and Pastor Nelly is still in Genesis for the high school age youth studies, of course, child care. Uh, is available. Your kids will be taught about Jesus as well. So, uh, we'd love to have you join us tonight. The women's portion of it will be live streamed on CalvarySA.com. Hope you had a great weekend at church. We did, um, uh, ladies. Can I just say, if you if you've got some people that are going through some difficult times and they think maybe God's not watching, uh, let me encourage you to uh, go to our website CalvarySA.com and listen to Paula's um, message on um our ladies fall luncheon that was this com- this past saturday um i know i'm i i you expect me to say this but she really did a great job and uh that is available on live stream uh, it's her testimony and and um, it's an amazing journey that the lord has brought her through so that's available live stream as well um yesterday at church we did basically one verse romans 8:28 and um one of my favorite studies in the book. So uh, that's available online as well. Hope people got saved when you went to church. People got saved here yesterday. Uh, I hope others made recommitments or rededicated their life to Jesus. They're tired of walking on that line with one foot in both worlds. Um, you know, when the word's taught, all that happens all the time. So hope that's the case in your church as well. One more time, three four zero ninety five eighty five. let me take some questions that we have had sent in. This one comes from AA, from our mobile app. AA always sends in great questions. He says, Philippians one twenty one says to live as Christ. Can you list what this means in today's world? Can this be boiled down to 10 things one should be doing um, without considering it to be time-consuming and burdensome? i I'm not going to give you ten things, but here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Just be with Jesus. That's what it means, to live as Christ. Uh, and another passage, Paul writes to, to, to Titus, he says, and when Christ, who is our life, appears. And so the the, the idea here is that, that Christ is your everything, your all in all. Now, part of our problem is that surrendering our lives to Christ should never be considered time-consuming and burdensome. Jesus said that His burden is light. His yoke is easy. What we try to do in our own strength is to do enough things to please the Lord, and that's always going to be time-consuming and burdensome. But you see, living for Christ is neither of those things. And so to live as Christ... Uh, Paul precedes it by saying uh, dying and being with Jesus is better by far. But to live means fruitful ministry in this body. It means that we've got to decide who it is we live for. If you're living for you, then your life is already burdensome. If you're living for Jesus, he's carrying the heavy lifting. He's the, the one who's doing all of the hard work. So this is important. Living for Christ is what it means when Paul says to live as Christ. And it just means wanting to know him better. If you want to know him better, you're going to have to spend time in his word. Is that time consuming? Well, yeah, but it's rewarding time. Is it burdensome? It certainly shouldn't be burdensome. I think when we boil down... Hey, I'm sorry. When we boil down... Um, reading the Bible, um, well, i got to spend 30 minutes a day or an hour a day. I think we miss the whole point. We have to, or we get to. That's the difference. And when you're living for Christ, you want to know what he has to say. I know I've said this many times in my church. Is tired of me saying stuff like this. But, you know, we spend so much time on things that don't matter, that have no value. Facebook, other forms of social media checking our phones, texting people. That's time-consuming and burdensome because those kinds of activities draw you away from the things of God. And can you imagine Jesus wakes you up every morning? I told the story in our church recently about uh, our son Ronnie, who was our firstborn. He used to come in, He and Ronnie's always been one of those guys that wakes up ready to go, just like his mother. And he would wake up, he'd, jump on his mom in bed and he would kind of put his his hands by her ears, open her eyes, are you awake mom, are you awake? Well that's what Jesus is doing for all of us, are you ready? I've got something for you. But if we burden ourselves with the things of this world, we never find what God has for us. To live as Christ speaks of priority. What's the most important thing? So A, there's not 10 things to do. There's one thing to do, and it's be with Jesus, to learn about him, to get to know him better, to invest in this relationship. I mean, think about it. A man who saved you from hell wants to save you in this life from yourself, from the world. So to live as Christ ought to be more than just a Bible verse. It ought to be what we desire to do each and every day. Very, very important. To live as Christ means to be with Jesus. And that's as practical as it can be. It doesn't mean pray more, read more, serve more. It means if you're with Jesus, you're going to be doing the things that he's occupying your heart and mind with. Let me give you a very practical exercise. If you'll do this every day, if you get up, and I mean, I do this literally. I, I, I these. It's just the way that works best for me. But I hold my hands open before the Lord, and I tell Him, empty me of everything that's me. I'm going to leave my hands open, Lord. So when You empty me of me, You can fill me with You. I want Your stuff, not my stuff. Now, in reality, practically. That means you're going to be a better husband, a better father, a better employee, a better friend. It means that you're going to be kind. You're going to have Jesus' heart for people. That's what to live as Christ means. It's to walk in the fullness of his spirit every day. Jesus said streams of living water will flow from within. Gushes, literally in Greek. That's what it is to live for Christ. When we live for us, what it means is that we're trying to schedule Jesus into our already crowded schedule. And that's always going to be frustrating. It's always going to be tiresome. And it's always going to be a burden. So not ten things. Let me just give you one. Be with Jesus every day. Wake up in the morning. Offer yourself to him. Get off the throne of your own heart. Invite him to sit down. And then utter these words. What about me, Lord? What about today? And you're still going to go to work. You're going to be a better employee. You're still going to spend time with your family in the morning and in the evening when you come home from work. You're going to be a better husband, better father. You're going to be a friend for those in need. And then what you're going to find a is that Jesus has your light shining so brightly that your life gets really, really busy. Because then he can trust you with people. To live needs to be Christ. That's our purpose in life. When we understand that, it changes everything. Hey, I hope that helps. 3409585. Here is a question from Bill. This is Pastor Ron. When and how was Abraham saved? Um, Abraham was saved like you're saved and like I'm saved by faith in Jesus even though he lived before Jesus. One thing's to understand and it's made clear Bill uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 uh, the, the, the Old Testament saints that are in what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith they were saved by believing God looking forward to a Savior. We're saved by believing God and looking back at an already complete event. They look forward to the cross, we look back at the cross, for my money it's easier for us because we have historical fact. They didn't know what they were looking for, they didn't know the times and seasons. So specifically with Abraham, you can go back to Genesis chapter 15, God told him to look to the sky and count the stars, if you can do that, and imagine in the ancient world with no pollution and no no light pollution even. imagine how bright on a clear night that sky would be, how many stars would be visible in a desert. God says, hey, if you can count those stars, well, that's how your descendants will be, descendants from your own body. Now, the reason he was saved by faith is because we know he was already old. We know that his wife Sarai was barren. It seemed impossible. At this point, Abraham's 75 years old. How can I have a child at 75? God said, look up. And when Abraham looked up, there was something about that voice. And he believed it. And we're told, I think it's the 6th verse of Genesis 15. We're told that God credited it to him as righteousness because he believed. So that's when Abraham was saved. That's when his reservation in heaven was secure. But it was most importantly, at least from our perspective, most importantly, it was most importantly when he began to be an example of what being a friend of God was all about, about what walking with Jesus every day should be like for us. Abraham believed the impossible it was simply because he believed God's word. Well, it's true for you and for me. If we believe God's word, we have a far more complete word of God than Abraham did. If we believe God's word, then we too are saved. Why? Because Jesus said, you have to believe in me. You must be born again. So Bill it works for Abraham just like it works for us and the same thing is true for Uh, All of those Old Testament saints, the people who perished uh, in the Old Covenant, they perished because they didn't believe God. Here's a question from Andrew. Andrew says, I know you're not a Calvinist, but what would a Calvinist say about God when their own children are not saved? How do they deal with the possibility that God did not choose their own children? Well, Andrew, I also don't speak for Calvinists because I am not a Calvinist. You're right about that but that's one of the real difficulties of uh, their theological position um you know if somebody is a calvinist and uh, their children are not walking with the lord uh, is it okay with them suddenly if god chooses some for heaven and some for hell when you're talking to a calvinist you're almost always talking to a real believer and so when you're talking to a real believer and and he or she says well god chose me i'm one of the elect So I know I'm saved. Well, what happens when it really hits close to home and it's one of their children? How do they explain to their children that maybe you're not saved? How do they deal with a good God who in eternity past decided some are going to heaven and some are going to hell? How do they deal with that child when they say, well, maybe you're just one God hasn't chosen? How do they deal with people when the logical outworking of their faith is that they can't tell some people that God loves them because they don't know they're chosen. You know, there's some situations where Bible cliches just don't work. We're the clay, he's the potter, whatever God wants to do is just and fair, and in heaven it'll all make sense. What do you do when that's your own son, your own daughter, your own husband, your own wife? You see, that's why it's so important to have a theology that comes from a systematic reading of the Bible instead of having a systematic theology through which you interpret the Bible. I hope that distinction is clear. If we begin every day reading our Bible and reading into it from a systematic theology that's been ingrained in us, then we miss the point of what the Bible says. For God so loved the world, suddenly becomes, well, God didn't love everybody, he only loved the elect. And Andrew, I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine a a staunch Calvinist who really believes that, well, maybe my kids aren't chosen, not praying. You can't change the mind of God because this has been, uh, fate has been sealed from, from eternity past. So how do they even pray for their children? That's one of the real problems with theology, with doctrine, if we discount the nature and the character of God. So, Andrew, that's one of the reasons I'm not a Calvinist, but the reason I'm really not a Calvinist is because to be one, you have to read into what the Bible says. I always want to make it clear when I'm talking about Calvinists that they are saved. That's not heresy. It's just really bad doctrine. It's a doctrine that steals the fruit. It's a doctrine that has all the answers wrapped up in little neat bundles. but there's no compassion none at all and is there not is our god not compassionate patient abounding in love you see that's why the nature and character of god determines what our doctrine should be rather than our doctrine being determined or determining rather who and what god is so uh, I, I don't know how they would answer that question. I can't even imagine the heartbreak, Andrew. I, I have uh, a child that I love with all my heart. I have two, but one of them is saved. The other is not yet. Uh, we see the hand of God working on him. But how would I pray for that child if I truly believed? Well, if he's not saved, he's just not one of the chosen. How could I deal with a God who says he loves me? but evidently doesn't love my son. And there's nothing we can do about it? If I couldn't tell that son that Jesus loves you, he died for your sins, and he's begging you to come to him, I don't know how we deal with the heart of that kind of a God. So again, it's not a heresy. They're just wrong. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We'd love to have them. Your voice is a lot better than mine. Here's a question from Benjamin. Since the true church is Christians, and he is, in parentheses, people, why do you say it's necessary to go to a church building? It seems there's way too much emphasis on the pastor who's in control and not enough on the congregation. You know, Benjamin, when I get questions like these, I always wonder how we became so cynical. God says, I want you to think about this. Now, I'm a pastor. You might say, well, of course you're going to say this, but this isn't me. This is Paul saying it. In Ephesians chapter four, God gave the idea there. The context is gifts to the church and pastors and teachers are one of those gifts Why are we so offended by somebody standing up and teaching the word? Why do we feel the need to put in our two cents worth? You're right, the true church is born again Christians all over the world in every denomination. But God says all of those Christians need to go to church need to go to church. That's very, very important. If you don't go to church, you're, you're forsaking the fellowship, the assembling together of the body. Hebrews 10.25 says, we ought not to do that. Why isn't that clear? How can there be emphasis on the congregation when you have a building filled with people? Everybody gets a chance to raise their hand and talk. Is that what people are looking for? No, we have different roles. And the reason you go to church is because God said, the reason you go to church is because that's where you get to minister to the people of God. And I think, Benjamin, that the perspective that you seem to be communicating here is so selfish. Well, if I was the one talking, I'd go to church. But since I'm not, I don't want to hear him. The congregation is just that, the congregation. If you'd really go to a a healthy church, what you'd find is that the emphasis is on the congregation. That's why the word is being taught. If you were here in our church yesterday, and I'll just use this one as an example, you would have been greeted the minute you walked in the door by the people opening the door and welcoming you. They're part of the body. They're doing their role. If you had kids, you'd check them into a a children's classroom where they would be taught by gifted people. At any given service, we might have 50 people serving. Maybe that's too conservative an estimate. When people come up, like they did yesterday, to give their heart to Jesus or to rededicate their life, there are people who come up and stand with them so they'll know that from this point forward they're never alone again. They have to face nothing alone. You see, that's the congregation coming to life. My role as the teacher is just that one thing. I just teach. I love my gift. I love my calling. But there's certainly nothing more special about what I do or the way I do it than what happens as the body ministers to itself. So Benjamin, maybe look into your heart. Maybe you have a problem with authority. But the church needs you and you need the church. So let the Lord have his way in your heart. 340-9585. Let's go to Harold on line one. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> okay, Harold, thank you very much. And we're inside one minute, so I will respond on the other side of the break. Uh, that's how important uh, Harold's question is. And, and I think, Harold, we have to distinguish between um, Bible verses. Um, and, and principles. And uh, on the other side of the break, I'll be happy to do that. It is um, really, really an important question. Uh, maybe if you're at home not driving your car, you can look at 1 Corinthians 10:13, and I'll sort of reference that when, when we come back. Hey, we're 30 minutes into the program. That means we've got 30 minutes left in the Word to Stand Up For Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'd love to have your live calls at 340-9585. 340 We'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of the Monday edition of the program. I want to remind you one more time that our men's, women's, and high school-age youth Bible studies start again tonight. Uh, small groups, discussion. Uh, it's always, always, always a good time. So, uh, if you um, just want to hear a little bit about God's Word, this would be a good place to hang out. Uh, I want to deal with Harold's question. He called back and said he is sitting at home with his Bible open. So uh, I appreciate that very, very much, Harold. A couple of things. It's important to understand. I said that before the break the difference between uh, specific scriptures and principles. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In other words, you didn't have to cave into it. Now, the the Greek word for test or temptation is the same. So in this particular context, we have to look at the context to see what Paul is talking about. He's talking about to the Corinthians. This is a letter I've said many times is scolding the Corinthians. And he says, stop grumbling, as some of them did, those who were in the wilderness grumbling and complaining against God and were killed by the destroying angel. And then he says this, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, the idea here, Harold, It's very straightforward. Um, Whatever you're facing, I hope this makes sense. Whatever you're facing, I promise you is too much for you to handle on your own. Everything is too much to handle for us on our own. But when we're standing with Christ, what we do is we give him those burdens. He said his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. So what he's asking us to do in those times when we seem to be facing something that's overwhelming, he's trying to remind us that we're trying to face it in our own strength, and this is something that he's already got handled. So what he's asking us to do is to exchange our heavy burden for his easy burden, our overwhelming troubles for his light troubles. And that's the only way we can survive. So when you are facing something really difficult, you can deal with it. Let me tell you a quick story. Harold, the worst thing that's happened in our 22-plus years here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio is we had a a, a, a young woman, um, literally the light of our church. Uh, This was a young woman who made everybody feel like her best friend, a woman who served tirelessly, a woman who had all kinds of, of... difficult burdens on her heart, but never let those crowd out the work that she could do for others. I mean, she was just the best of the best even now as I'm sitting here in my studio at the office. I'm looking at a picture that she made when her and her husband first came to the church. I was teaching in Romans for the very first time. And um, she put uh, uh, did a, photo- a picture. She was a photographer. And she gave me that as a gift. I mean, there's just... Still, years and years later, there's all these remnants of, of her work and she was murdered. Home invasion, um, she was murdered. It was just uh, the, well, the worst possible thing. And, you know, at, at first you're running on adrenaline. You know, as a pastor, you're doing the things, our church body, we're doing the things that we know to do. I, I'm aware that there are people going to be showing up at church uh, who, who are going to be heartbroken as the word spreads, I've got to go to be with her husband. I, I, I needed to meet him when he arrived at the crime scene. Um, uh, identifying the body, things like that. They, they're just things you do. Well, you come home at the end of that night. Then I had to run back here and meet the people that were coming. And I never had a chance to really deal with this. So that night, uh, we get through it. Was, it happened to be a Wednesday night. We had a Bible study and said we just prayed and cried and and. and comforted people as best we could i woke up the next morning knowing i had another full day I had to get over to the house where she lived right away um to be with her husband tim and i remember i just had to get away for a minute take a walk with the lord and i cried out harold i can't handle this and as sternly as jesus has ever spoken to me here's what he said he said yes you can Because you have to. I've prepared you for this moment. And what he was telling me was to to get out of my own way. to, To make sure that I understood that my job was comforting others. Now, I couldn't do that on my own. So what I had to do is quit focusing on my problem, my pain. And be available to minister to others who were in pain. I had a husband who couldn't make sense of this that whole church body that was just devastated, and God was faithful, just like first corinthians ten thirteen says this wasn't a temptation to sin, this was a test, and others go through it, and he promised me that I could handle it that's what first Corinthians ten thirteen means. And that's what people are referring to when they say God won't give you more than you can bear. Now, at the time when we're overwhelmed by something, at that moment, believe me, we feel overwhelmed. But that's when we have to take a step back and by faith let the power of God's Spirit rest upon us and understand that because I can do nothing, Jesus, you have to do this. And it is true in principle That whatever you go through, Jesus walks through with you. And apart from him being there with us, we could never, ever survive these really difficult things. But somehow he's there to provide the peace that passes understanding. He's there to remind you that he's the only one who knows what it's like to go through something so hard. And he knows that only because he went through something Far harder him himself personally. So, principally, both of those things are right. Our challenge by faith, Harold, is to remember it when we're about to be overwhelmed, when we face some trial. You know, first, usually, especially when something uh, a tragedy happens, we respond with with fear. We respond with emotion. And that's why I'm always harping on this program and to my church that we need to get the word in. As you put it in, God will bring it out at just the right time. And the moment you think that you can handle this, he'll be right there standing with you, letting you know that he's got it. So Harold, everything we try to handle on our own is too overwhelming for us. Little things, big things, the giant things. You remember David as he faced down Goliath. All of Israel cowering in a cave for fear that this giant was going to destroy them. David's perspective was, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? David was saying, he's not fighting me, he's fighting God. So David was God's man at the moment. But there could have been a lot of God's men at the moment if they would have believed what David believed that this giant was no match for God's man. And that's what we forget when we're facing something horrendous. We forget that this event, this tragedy is no match. It doesn't mean, Harold, that you won't hurt. It doesn't mean that, oh, everything will be fine or I'll feel better. It just means this, and please hear my heart on this. It means when you're crying, when you're grieving, He's right there with you, his arm around you. And he's crying and grieving with you. And if you let him, he'll grieve for you. And the only way that we can stand is to be standing with him. The Holy Spirit. Jesus called him the comforter. The Greek word is a word that is a vivid picture. It's it's the one who walks beside you and keeps you from tottering over. You lean out of weakness. You lean from fear, and he sets you back up. Jesus says he goes before us. The Bible says he's our rear guard. Numbers says his everlasting hands are beneath us lest we fall. Those are the things that we have to know if we're not going to be overwhelmed. So it is true that God never gives you more than you can handle as long as you're with Jesus. But if you try to handle anything on your own, it's going to be way too much for you to handle. I hope that makes sense to you, Harold. Thank you very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Lewis. He said, Pastor, I heard John MacArthur say that the Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit just like we do, but you have said that's not true. Which is it? Well, I'll let the Bible answer for you, Lewis. John chapter 7, verse 39. He was just talking about these streams of living water, these gushes of living water, Jesus promising the Holy Spirit. And John seven thirty-nine says, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And if that's not clear enough, the rest of the verse says, up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the Old Testament saints couldn't have been given the Spirit because it's as clear as it can possibly be that the Spirit had not been given. Now, the Old Testament saints had a relationship with the Holy Spirit, for sure, but it was different. The Spirit didn't live in them. He would come upon them in power to perform um, whatever the feat or the task was that God uh, had them to do. David, Samson, uh, Moses, they all had the Spirit come upon them in power to do something, but the Spirit didn't stay with them. Moses, you know, would would, would talk to God like a man talks to a friend face-to-face, uh, his face would shine when he'd come from those times, but the, f- the the shine faded away. The glory faded away. But for you and for me, Lewis, that glory never has to fade away because God has put himself in us. So yes, Samson could do miraculous things. Samson had no relationship with God until the very end of his life. But still, God's power came upon Samson. God's power came upon all of those Old Testament saints to prophesy, uh, to, to perform miracles, Elijah, Elisha. But they didn't walk with the Spirit because the Spirit had not yet been given. So to have the Spirit given to us means that he comes and lives in us. Paul says he is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And so it's a completely different... That's why David in Psalm 51, his famous Psalm of Repentance... Encourage everybody who's in sin to read that over and over and over, because the relief—you can hear the relief. Take not thy holy spirit from me; restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Well, that's why David had to pray. Take not thy holy spirit. He knew that without God's spirit, he'd be fighting future battles on his own, and there was still a lot of David's life to live, a lot of victories to win. He needed the power of God's spirit but he never had the Spirit. So, I respect John MacArthur, but he's pretty wrong on this one. Hope that makes sense. Kirk says, is it possible to really know for sure that we are saved? Uh, Kirk, the answer is, yes, it's possible. First John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, here's the key, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So obviously John wants us to know if it was unknowable, then he wouldn't have been able to write that sentence. Now, here's I think the problem. I think we have doubts because there's an enemy who's always bringing doubts. I think we give that enemy openings and opportunities uh, to cause confusion and to cause fear um, in those times when we're separate from God, when we're doing things that we know we're not supposed to do. And I always tell people, I don't want one person who's not walking with Jesus, one person who's living in willful disobedience to have any security at all. So it's not, well, see, now I know I'm saved, I can go sin because I'm saved, I got this. No, the Bible's intentionally written to make those of us who are not walking with Jesus feel insecure. God knows whether you're saved, you don't need to know. But here's what I can tell you. If you're walking with Jesus, you know you're saved. Jesus said, abide in me and I'll abide in you. And there's no one who is abiding in Christ Kirk, who isn't confident of their salvation. It's when we get some distance between us and Jesus, that's when the doubts become, or begin rather, to creep in. So we can know beyond any doubt that we are saved. A lot of times in church I'll tell people here that I am I know I'm saved. I've never had one doubt, by the way, Kirk, in my 26-plus years walking with Jesus, even from the very beginning as a brand-new Christian with no church background, no Bible background. I knew the minute I met Jesus that my sins were forgiven, and I knew I was going to heaven, and I knew that was his decision, not mine. So when I messed up, it didn't occur to me that I lost that salvation, God says it's a guarantee. He's the one who holds our futures. So I've never had that doubt, never, never one moment's doubt about my salvation. Now, I'm pretty sure Paul is saved. But the rest I don't have to know anything about. God knows those who are his. God will not be mocked, Galatians says. So what do we do? We walk with Jesus and we know we're saved. We know we we belong to him. I think sometimes, Kirk, when we have these crises of faith, it's because we've done something wrong and we're listening to the lies of the enemy. like, did I lose my salvation? So yes, not only is it possible, but God wants you to know, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, not hope, or not wish, but that you may know you have eternal life. And I think, personally, Kirk, that it breaks God's heart when people who really belong to Him have those kind of doubts. I really do. God can be distant from you while you're in sin, but that doesn't mean He's going to turn His back on you. He's not like you are, not like I am. So it's just one of those things where We can know. We can walk in that knowledge. We can enjoy it. And then we can choose not to believe the lies of the enemy. How do I know I'm saved? Well, I walk with Jesus today. I've been with him all day today here at church. How can you not know if you're with him? That's what it means to abide in Christ. And he will abide in you. I hope that answers your question. Joe says... How is it possible to enjoy heaven knowing family members are in hell that 's really a tough question because we 're thinking from a time and space dimension um, you know we, we respond emotionally to the things that are going on it's hard for us um, even while we 're here on earth when when people that we care about aren 't walking with God, we want them to get saved. So how do we get to heaven and suddenly have great joy? Remember the Former things have passed away. A new order. Heaven is a new order altogether. So I think all of our time um, references, all of our earthly references and pain will sort of be wiped completely away. We'll be in heaven so overwhelmed by the glory of heaven Joe, read Revelation chapter 1 verses 10 through 18. That description of Jesus, when we see him like that, then everything changes. And we'll have a whole new frame of reference for what's good and glorious. And the old order of things will pass away. Is that fair? I think we'll just be so intimately involved with the goodness and the glory of God that we won't think on those things. You know, Joe, it's always frustrating to me when I get questions like, well, um, I want my pet in heaven. How, how can I be happy if my, my pet isn't in heaven? Uh, your pet was a gift from God to enjoy here on earth. And when you're in heaven, you'll be thanking him for that gift. You'll be looking at the one from whose goodness those gifts came. I can't, from an earthly perspective, imagine heaven without people I really love being there. But when we get to heaven, our focus shifts completely. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more heartbreak. Why? Because the old order of things has passed away. Admittedly, Joe, on Earth, this is impossible for us to comprehend. It's impossible for us to comprehend. But I can promise you that war in heaven. will understand it perfectly. 340-9585. I think we're inside five minutes. Phone's been a little bit quiet again today. Uh, here is a question from Iris. She wants to know, was Rahab's lie a good thing because the spies were saved? What if we lie for a good reason? Is it then okay? Uh, Rahab's lie. You know, people look at Rahab's inclusion in Hebrews chapter 11, Iris, and, and they think, well, she lied and she's in it, so sometimes lying's okay. Jesus made it as clear as he could. The devil is the father or the source of lies. So when we lie, we're speaking his native tongue. That means lying can never be good. Now Rahab's lie, the joy of of her lie is that it didn't condemn her. She didn't lie in faith. She lied because her faith was weak. Do you think God could have and would have saved those spies if she'd told the truth? But remember, she was brand new, we would say it in the New Testament sense, brand new to the faith. She didn't have any relationship with God up to that point. She didn't know, but but this was her first act as a believer. This proved that she believed she was fearful of God. She wanted to be on God's side. And so from her limited perspective, Lying made sense, but God would have delivered those spies regardless. She lied not in faith. She lied because her faith was weak. Now, what we've got to understand in our world, can God accomplish his will in somebody's life if you don't lie? It doesn't mean you have to tell them everything. It doesn't mean that you can't look at somebody and say, you know, there's some things I just... Don't need to tell you right now. But lying is never good. Lying is never a good thing because when we're lying, we're being empowered by an enemy who wants to destroy us. And believe me, take this from my own personal experience, Iris, uh, as a a man who was only lying when his lips were moving before I got saved. Uh, When I've exaggerated or when I have have uh, lied to spare somebody's feelings or, or even a few times lied to make myself look better instead of worse. Boy, the Spirit of God convicted me so completely and so quickly. And I knew it was wrong. And when we lie, we know it's wrong. I think sometimes, Iris, we lie because it makes things easier for us. We blame. Well, it was a good cause. God understands my heart. He won't condemn you for the lie, but when you lie, you need to repent. It's that simple. So, Iris, think that, or I hope that anyway, answers your question. Got time for one more question? We're inside a couple of minutes here. Leo wants to know what does it mean to pick up your cross to follow Jesus. Well, Jesus said to be my disciple. That's what you have to do. You have to pick up your cross daily. If to deny yourself, it means you're living sacrificially for him. It's sort of akin to the question that we had at the beginning. Uh, what does it mean to live as Christ? Well, it means that, that what you're doing is for him instead of for you. To pick up your cross every day means that you say yes to him. But in order to say yes to him, Leo, you have to say no to you. It means when the choice comes between doing what you want or what he wants. It's got to be a no-brainer for you. I'm going to do what you want, Jesus, even though this is what I want. And we do that knowing that what he wants is better for us than what we want for us. When we're tempted by sin, we've got to say no. That's picking up our cross. You ever notice the devil never tempts us with stuff that we hate? you got to pick up your cross every day and follow him. Jesus said that's the very addition, definition of being a disciple. Hey, thanks for the questions today. appreciate Harold, you calling. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up For Life. Remember tonight, men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Paula will be teaching the ladies. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up For Life. We'll be back tomorrow. See you then.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On For Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.